Coming up on Philosophy Talk, St. Augustine of Hippo. I dreamed I saw St. Augustine Alive as you are me To sing once is to pray twice. Nothing conquers except truth, and the victory of truth is love. Give what thou dost command, and command what thou wilt. To many, total abstinence is easier than perfect moderation. Excess is the enemy of God. Love is the sinner and hate the sin. Our hearts are restless until they repose in thee. Grant me chastity and continence, but not just yet. What does that mean? Our guest is James O'Donnell from Georgetown University. Author of Augustine, Sinner and Saint. The Philosophy of St. Augustine. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, St. Augustine, one of the most important theologians and philosopher, philosophers in Western history, we'll start by looking at the relationship between Augustine's life and his philosophy. Then we'll dig into one of the major issues St. Augustine worried about, namely free will, good and evil. And finally, we'll talk about his thoughts on war and terrorism. Some basic facts. Augustine was born in 354 AD in the waning years of the Roman Empire. When Rome was sacked by the Visigoths in the year 410, many Romans fled to Augustine's native North Africa for safety. He died in 430 AD at the hand of a later wave of invaders. And Augustine's discussion of the sack of Rome and his ideas about just war are curiously relevant to modern issues of war and terrorism. Ken, given your Notre Dame education, I, I suspect you dip into Augustine's Confessions or the City of God every night before dropping off to sleep. How about sharing with the rest of us some reasons why we should be interested in an African-Roman philosopher who died a millennium and a half ago and thought that sex was sinful? John, I'm afraid you slightly overestimate my love for reading the great works of uh, Christian philosophers. But Augustine is important for a variety of reasons. He's the first author to write a personal autobiography. His Confessions is a really, really great book. He tells how he began as a Manichaean, became a Christian, struggled with the thought of abandoning his love of the good life as a professor in Milan with a mistress and a beloved child to become a celibate Christian back in North Africa. And at least the first nine chapters before he delves into stuff about time and all this make for really good reading, like a really fine novel. Okay, okay. Confessions is good stuff. But I've got a copy of The City of God. It's a thousand pages long. It does not read like a good novel. Well, you got me there. In that, With that one, you have to skip around a bit. I mean, there, But there's one part that I think even you would like to read. That's the part where... Uh, Augustine worries about what sex would have been like in the Garden of Eden before Adam's sin and God's punishment. I mean, because Augustine thought that as a result of original sin, certain bodily urges and certain parts of our body, certain crucial parts of our body, were no longer within our control. And, but, and he wondered, and he was intrigued about what sex would have been like when uh, everything was fully within our control before original, before original sin. Well, Ken, that does sound very titillating. Yeah, but you know, it really does show something important about uh, Augustine that's more 
more important than mere titillation. He was a really great philosopher. He had a quality of mind that I know you would value. He got seized by philosophical problems, and he found them everywhere because he really wanted to think things through and get to the bottom of things. He's the one who said, I know what time is when I'm not thinking about it, but as soon as I do, it's a complete mystery. Okay, he can be fun to read. He's a good philosopher. But still, aren't his ideas just a tad dated? Do we really care about the worldview of a celibate 5th century bishop? Well, if you care about history at all, you should care. I mean, I know we'd have to rank Jesus as the most important person in the history of Christianity. But surely Gustin ranks second, or at the very least third, after St. Paul. Well, I know his views about sex and women had a big uh, big effect, mostly unfortunate. What else is important? Well, he formulated the standard Christian doctrines of free will, the problem of evil, the relation of God and time, the Trinity. He merged Greek and biblical thought into a coherent system. I guess when I learned my catechism, I was learning a lot of stuff pretty much straight from Augustine. Yeah, you betcha. And finally, he was the first great African philosopher in the Western tradition. Well, no wonder you're such a fan. You philosophers of African ancestry stick together. Was Augustine black? Well, he was a Berber, and I think we'd call him a person of color today. Okay, you've convinced me. St. Augustine is an interesting and influential figure even for a guy born in the 4th century. But would his ideas have differed if he'd grown up in today's world? Our roving philosophical reporter, Zoe Corneli, tried to answer that question. She files this report. As a teenager, Augustine was sexually frustrated. He writes in his confessions he was boiling over in his fornications. Out of the muddy concupiscence of the flesh and the bubblings of youth, mists fumed up which beclouded and overcast my heart, that I could not discern the clear brightness of love from the fog of lustfulness. Both did confusedly boil in me and hurried my unstayed youth over the precipice of unholy desires and sunk me in a gulf of flagitiousness. In other words, he was, like many young men, very interested in sex. And this, he felt, was evil. So what if a troubled young Augustine could have received the expert advice of sexologist Isadora Allman, author of the long-running weekly column, Ask Isadora? Yes, it is a natural force in all human beings, not any more to be conquered than our desire to sleep or desire to eat. Augustine may have recognized that lust is a basic part of who we are, but he felt it was a bad part. Allman disagrees. I will say our nature is, period, as opposed to our nature is bad, good. It simply is. And how you want to deal with the fact of your nature is your choice as a functioning adult. And it is my job as a psychotherapist to help you deal with your nature. Augustine didn't have the opportunity to see a psychotherapist. He decided he wasn't the best person to deal with his nature. God was. And thou sentest thine hand from above and drewest my soul out of that profound darkness. Augustine went on to become a big promoter of the idea that by accepting God, you can overcome the bad parts of being human. Why then be perverted and follow thy flesh? Be it converted and follow thee. That notion doesn't sit well with Allman. The point of, of psychotherapy is self-acceptance. To take the essential nature and say part of it is bad, essentially, seems very wrong to me. It's wrong because it sets one at war with oneself. And society already does that for us. Society already gives us norms 
uh, commercial norms that are unattainable by 99% of people. To be told that part of our essential nature is to conquer the other part, boy, that really is setting up an impossible dichotomy and guaranteed way of misery for the rest of one's life. Allman says in her practice, she sees examples of that kind of misery all too often. I remember early on in my career, uh, I saw uh, a young man, midlife, probably late 30s, who was the son of um, uh, fundamentalist Christians. And the guy was really tormented. And what he really wanted to do was cross-dress. I mean, that's really what he had been, the demon that he had been struggling with. Now, you know, that's such a harmless thing. He wanted in the privacy of his bedroom to put on garments that our society says is for one sex and not the other. He didn't want to, you know, molest little children. He simply wanted to play dress up. And when I put it to him in those terms, that it needn't affect anybody else at all, except him and his own private pleasure, the guy youthened in front of my face. I mean, he dropped 30 years worth of misery in order to, to recast the concept of what he was looking at as, as a diversion as opposed to a, a sin. Augustine, on the other hand, found God and became celibate. If he had consulted a sexologist, though, the history of Christianity might have turned out very differently. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Zoe Corneli. I'm John Perry. With me is Ken Taylor. And our guest today is James O'Donnell. He's provost at Georgetown University, author of Augustine, Sinner and Saint, a new biography. James, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Well, howdy. Thank you for having me here. So, James, uh, tell us briefly how you became interested in St. Augustine. Well, you asked me that question before, and I realized I can pin it to a particular day, November 15th, 1969. Wow. You guys may be old enough to remember that that was the day of the Great March on Washington, protesting the war in Vietnam. I can't quite remember why I didn't go to march, but I was instead in the Princeton University Library doing my homework for the week. What I happened to find I was reading by assignment was Book 19 of Augustine's City of God, which is where he talks about war and peace and freedom and society. And it really hit home at that particular moment for me that I was seeing a more comprehensive, more holistic, more generous, more inclusive way of thinking about the issues that were hot in everybody's mind at that time uh, than I was finding in our dormitory bowl sessions, in the newspapers, in the periodicals of the time. Uh, he hooked me, and I'm still hooked. Wow. I mean, on November 15th, 1969, I drove from Ithaca, New York, down to Washington to march. If I'd stayed there in Olin Library and read my St. Augustine, my life might have been quite different. But, As but, a matter of fact. <laughs> yes, let's... Uh, Let's uh, get to St. Augustine here and his philosophical ideas. Ken, explain to me why Augustine is historically important. Tell, tell me what you think are the most important of his ideas for modern folk to understand. Not all of them, just a few of them, <laughs> yeah. and in brief compass. Sure. Well, one point I talked about how he does microtheology and macrotheology, made up those words. Microtheology, I say in him, is about freedom, the perception of freedom, the fact that we feel constrained about what we do. Um, he's reading Paul and trying to make sense of him. What comes out the other end is predestination. We're going to try to talk about that a little bit. He talks macrotheology when he tries to figure out how human society works. How do people live together in communities side by side with each other, sometimes fighting, sometimes at peace? Um, I never say that the ideas he had are ones that 
uh, are all right by a long shot. But it's important historically that he frames many of the debates that lots and lots of other people have participated in from that day to this. And if you know where he's coming from, you can follow a lot more of what we've argued about since a lot better. I, I guess his contributions to Christian thought and theology come naturally enough after his conversion. Tell, tell us a, a little bit about his life and how he got to that point. Now, he, he was a Manichaean, and Manichaeans, as I understand it, believe that God is not omnipotent and that there's another force of evil in the world. What drew him to that in the first place? Well, he was never not a Christian. His mother was a Christian, wanted him baptized. Manichaeism was a particular kind of Christianity uh, that said that Jesus and God were at war with the devil from all time and that there was good and evil constantly in conflict in the world. That was what he fell into when he was reading in the library when he was 19 years old. Uh, took him another 15 years to get past that. And ever afterwards, when he was a Christian, he was always an ex-Manichae. He was always obsessed by the questions from before, kind of like an ex-communist is right. always an ex-communist. I, I take it that, the, as I understand Manichaeanism, Manichaeanism which uh, is not too well, and mostly from reading stuff about Augustine, uh, one of the things that drew him to Manichaeanism in the first place was that the, Manichaean, the Manichaeans had a putative explanation of how there could be evil in the world. Right, I mean, and and they thought that sort of other kinds of Christianity didn't have an explanation of how there could be evil in the world. Do do I have that roughly right? Oh, exactly. How does an all good, all powerful God let evil exist in the world? That's a question people still wrestle with a bunch. The Manichees had an answer because there was another force in the world that was evil, and there was a war going on. Yeah, and so that means that the God wasn't all powerful, all good, or God was all powerful, all good, but this other force was kind of equally powerful. I mean, what was the idea? You know, God was all good, but um, he was about as all powerful as you are if there's somebody else all powerful standing next to you. Ah, well, you know, you have to like a religion founded by a guy named Manny. I mean, it sounds like a religion <laughs> that got started in New Jersey, but uh, apart from that. Uh, it's a natural explanation of, of, of good and evil. But but Augustine, when he converted, had to come up with another explanation. And I guess we're going to dig into the whole series of concepts about that in the next segment. But uh, yeah, And we are going to dig into that. But I just want to say, it strikes me from reading Augustine and reading about the time that there were lots of options around in those days, that intelligent thinking people who were spiritual had lots of avenues for expressing that. And it's kind of miraculous in some ways that Christianity won out and became dominant. What, what do you think about that thought? Well, the miracle was assisted by the power of the Roman state, and it's always good to have the army and the police on your side if you want your miracle to work. <laughs> Augustine was a young man when the emperors finally banned all forms of official traditional Roman sacrifice and religion. Um, that was a pretty tough moment for a lot of people. Um, Augustine himself, when he went back to Africa, was on the in a minority Christian sect, uh, locally, but again, the Roman government came in and backed his side against the other. And over 20 years of his career, he made his minority sect into the majority sect. Right, and, right. We'll talk more about use that power. We'll talk about more about Augustine's life, times, and thoughts in a bit. You're listening to Philosophy Talk today. We're discussing Saint Augustine with James O'Donnell from Georgetown University. Saint Augustine was a philosopher who focused a lot of his thinking on temptation and sin, and saw these concepts as fundamental to understanding human life. Do you see things this way? Do you see yourself as a bundle of mostly sinful urges that will rage out of control unless you seek God's help? Tell us about your temptations, sins, and, if relevant, redemption. Join us by calling toll-free at 1-800- You're listening to an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. One saint and a bunch of sinners, plus your calls and emails, when Philosophy Talk continues.
more than that I wanna be bad I wanna be evil And trump an Okay, Eartha Kitt wants to be evil. How about you? Do you sometimes feel the urge to be evil? Is St. Augustine's vision of evil at the core of human life a valid conception or a 1,500-year mistake on the part of Christianity? This is Philosophy Talk, and I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. The toll-free number is one 800 525 You're hearing an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. Or email us at comments at philosophytalk.org. Our guest is James O'Donnell from Georgetown University. James, we talked a bit about the Manichaean solution to the problem of evil, two, two forces battling it out, a good one and a bad one. And Augustine was uh, for a while taken by that. Well, what, how did he decide he could deal with this problem once he became a Christian? And what was the problem with the Manichaean solution anyway? I mean, tell us both about why the Manichaean uh, solution doesn't work for Augustine and how the Christian uh, solves it better. Well, the Manichaean solution leaves a lot of evil in the world. Um, Augustine actually fell into Christianity by way of Platonism. He read Plotinus' works in Latin translation, and they persuaded him that God and being were all completely good. And if that's the case, then you're left imagining that the only source of evil comes from you and me. It's sin. It's what we choose to do. And that's the solution that worked better for him. Uh, Wait a minute, I, I, just a second. You said the Manichaean solution left a lot of evil in the world. Well, isn't there evil in the world? So isn't that the, a right solution? Well, sure, le- but leaves it there in a permanent way as though it belongs here. Augustine couldn't accept that. In the end, he's trying to vote in favor of a world that is entirely good and created by an entirely good God in which everything works out to the good in the end. And that's a that's a more optimistic vision. Uh, okay, I, I get the idea. Evil's evil's the fault of, of human beings and maybe a few fallen angels and, and, and so forth. But after all, God created all of us. I mean, doesn't he bear the ultimate responsibility for the evil we do? Well, you know, you come to the point. Uh, there were other Christian writers in the early centuries who were so taken by that argument that in order to protect God, they did away with hell. And they said that after you die, maybe you go to hell, but after hell, then there will come a point at which everybody is reunited to God in perfect happiness and unity forever. The official church banned that because there's just too much hell in the Bible. But it's (laughs) a pretty persuasive argument if you're really trying to insist on the all-goodness of God. So, James, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. I'm confused. You're not the only one. Well, so, so uh, okay, we're trying to f- explain how there could be evil in the world given a perfectly good God who is its creator. And the Manichaean had this answer, and, and Augustine said that leaves too much evil in the world. But he said the human, we humans are somehow responsible for evil. But wait a minute. God created us. God's perfectly mm-hmm. good. We're the issue of God. So how could we be responsible without him being responsible since he did the creating, right? Well, because God, this is Augustine talking now, not me, you understand. God gave man perfect freedom. And in that perfect freedom, it had to include the ability to goof up. And way back at the beginning, humankind goofed up. God's not happy with that, Augustine says. And so the whole uh, sending of Jesus and the redemption of humankind is God's repair work on the human species. Well, let's go. Let's go back to Genesis, you know. And let's. Uh, I mean, uh, and, and I and I'm uh, I'm Adam, 
right? And maybe I'm a more articulate Adam. I, I guess that sounds a little presumptuous, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> Adam's God direct issue, John, uh, and, and you uh, are. Uh, I don't uh, know. Yeah, God says, uh, uh, "You ate the apple. You're out of here. Uh, childbearing will be difficult. Your body won't uh, uh, will have these uncontrollable urges." Uh, it seems like Adam should say, "But look, I mean, you're all perfect. You're omniscient, omnipotent." And, and apparently a really nice guy. I mean, and you created me just a few days ago. Uh, you must have known that I would eat the apple. Why are you so angry now? What's Augustine's answer to that? You know, there weren't lawyers around when Adam was there. And he didn't have you to argue for him. Um, let, me, let me kind of frame it this way. Augustine's biggest both opportunity and problem He's got the Bible standing in the way. Uh He's accepted the Bible as a true story about human past. And lots of stuff he does is his way of making sense of the stuff that comes to us in the Bible. And when he gets an argument like that, his natural answer is going to be to fish out the right biblical passage from his point of view that sets up a good answer to it. He'll do it as a sophisticated interpreter and a philosophically trained interpreter, but the Bible's going to trump for him. So, well, so, okay, the Bible's going to trump, but I'm still, the lawyer's around now. John's a, John's a very good advocate. I, what would Augustine, armed with a Bible, have said back to John, who said, wait a minute, you knew this was going to happen. You created me knowing it was going to happen. Uh, so you, in a way, chose it. No, I mean, you chose my choosing it or something. I mean, I, mean, I guess I mean, I mean, I guess God would say, well, I created you free. And, you know, since I created you free, I guess you can screw up. But what, what's so great about freedom? I mean, why didn't he just create us so we'd do the right thing? Because freedom is being more like God. That's Augustine's answer. And he created man in the image and likeness of God. And once man decided to screw up, um, it takes a big, complicated process to get things fixed right again. Okay, wait a minute. I still, I still have, I'm still troubled. Okay, oh. God doesn't screw up. Right. God, I, 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 I know God's supposed to be all-powerful, but in some ways I would think God, I think I learned this at Notre Dame and before, God <laughs> doesn't have the power to screw up because God see, pre- conceives the good and automatically wills the good. It would be some defect to cognize the good and not will the good. Well, so how come God made us such that we could cognize the good, but then, and I guess cognize it as good because cognize it as God's divine command because Adam was indirect, but then nonetheless... We have this power uh, to not do the good. And that, that seems like an imperfection that God introduced well, but, into But us. you're making an assumption, Ken. It may turn out that this is the best of all possible worlds. And we're just, you know, we're going through a little patch yeah. where that's not obvious. So, so James, what, what, so, you know, Socrates would have said, you know, if you see the good, you, do the, you will the good, right? Adam saw the good and willed not the good. How, how could that God have made such a, a, a combination of mind and will, of intellect and will? Boy, you know, you guys are good. Um, Augustine spent the last 10 years of his life fighting with a bishop in Italy named Julian of Eclanum, who was a lot like you guys. You you remind me of him. Did he have a radio Um, show? (laughs) uh, No, but he had a press agent. Yeah, he had a bully pulpit. Augustine had a a, a big... Um, Augustine does wind up with with a theory in which Adam had freedom, but he could go either way. We don't have freedom. We don't really have freedom because the way Adam screwed up makes us less free to choose. And we need to get redeemed and get grace in order to get free. When we do and we go to heaven, then we'll be like what you're describing. Nobody in heaven gets to sin because they see the good so directly that they just see the good, know the good, do the good, no problem. 
So, so James, we've got a really interesting email here from John in Berkeley. Uh, it goes like this. Maybe most mildly theologically reflective Christians would be Pelagians. You're going to have to explain to us what that is. Original sin is just Adam's bad example. Blessedness is framed by Jesus' good example. The moral individual can choose well or ill between these exemplars. Now, that sounds like common sense to me, but I guess it's a heresy, the Pelagian heresy, and Augustine said, no, it's much more complicated than that. Can you explain this aspect of Augustine's thought? Well, wait a minute, John. Can you explain the common sense thing you see in there? I'm not quite sure I follow it. Well, the common sense is we have the power, just like Adam did, to choose the good or evil. But it's, but, but, and that was Pelagius' view. Uh, but, but Augustine had a more complicated view. Pelagius was reacting to it, and he ended up being banned as a heretic, I think. And you're right, but then over the hundred years after that, folks who had banned Pelagius as a heretic did actually also back off of some of Augustine's ideas because a hard predestination gets you back to the God deciding who's going to hell, and that doesn't sound so good. So, and so you have arguments through the Middle Ages. As I get it, Augustine's view was something like this. Uh, after Adam, we don't really have the power in ourselves to right. do right. We have to get God's grace. Well, that sounds good. The bad news is we don't have the power. The good news is, though, that God will give us the grace if we ask. But then there's a bit of a problem because asking for God's grace seems like a good thing, and we don't have the power to do that. Not really, that's what bugged Pelagius, as I understand it. Oh, oh, I think so. Let me point to something that Augustine was seeing in his world that made it hard for him. Parents were coming to him with infant children and insisting he baptize them because they wanted those children to go to heaven. When he was a young clergyman, he didn't understand how this could work because baptism ought to be something you do when you're mature and responsible and can accept this. He ends up by theorizing original sin as the explanation for why you need to be baptized when you're a little child. That little children can misbehave. That's the sign of sin in them. So they need baptism from the very first beginning. And a lot of the trouble he gets himself in is trying to build out the theory that explains this fact of infant baptism that he sees going on around him. Well, his, his, uh, his, his views about the obnoxiousness of small children is, I think, one of his more insightful views. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that, though, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're th talking about the philosophy and life and the influence of St. Augustine. And we'd like you to join our conversation, 1-800-525. This is an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. And Jessica in Oakland on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Jessica. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a personal comment that sort of leads into a historical question, which is um, I was raised in the Midwest in an evangelical Christian environment, and I've been on the West Coast in the Bay Area for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the contrast between um, sort of the, in, in my experience, the sort of puritanical attitudes of um, the area that I grew up in versus the sort of uh, freedom, liberation kind of, uh, attitudes out here are very, um, it's a very big contrast, and um, I appreciate being out on the West, West Coast personally, and so my question about Augustine would be, um, I guess I'm wondering what was going on in the church at the time, and did you say he's 5th century? Yeah. Yeah. That's and right, 4th, 5th. It seems like, you know, if the church was weak and small, that he was trying to sort of consolidate power, but now that the and now in my day, the church is very powerful, and so we're sort of suffocating from the uh, overbearing. Um, it's sort of like some, a, a big tree that's gotten unwieldy or something, and so we kind of want to escape from it. Um, but it, maybe it was different at his time, I guess, is what I'm wondering. So if you could speak to that, I'd appreciate it. Thanks, sure. Two ahead. things, maybe. One is that 
even though the empire was now on the side of the church, Augustine and his contemporaries hadn't really absorbed that yet. They were still acting like they were the persecuted remnant and hadn't fully understood what it was like to have the whole power of the Roman Empire on their side. And that was a dangerous thing. Second thing to say is, in his own time, Augustine was by no means the most puritanical of Christian writers, not by a long shot. And if you look at him in context, he's the one who's saying, okay, I understand premarital sex is wrong, but it happens and you got to cope with it. I understand adultery is wrong, but it happens and you got to cope with it. But because he's the most influential figure from that period whose works are still read to us today, um, it's, we get the spirit of his times, which is a more puritanical one coming through, and don't see the way in which he was himself trying to find at least a, what, moderately less puritanical position to take than some other folks. Now, just, on that point, it might be interesting to, to learn a little more about the Confessions. As I understand it, this was his attempt to kind of make people feel better, that is, if this great bishop had undergone all this sin and temptation, then they shouldn't feel so bad about themselves. And it's a remarkable book because it's really the first personal autobiography that delves into a person's feelings and not just kind of a, a, a recitation of events in, in the history of literature, as I understand it. How, how, I mean, what about Augustine uh, explains this, this book? Along that lines, I read somewhere, I don't know if this is right, that Augustine is the kind of inventor of Western interiority, that is, <laughs> of putting subjectivity really to the fore. I mean, people think of Descartes as having done that, but but centuries before, Descartes was talking about this, I mean, Augustine was delving into his inward journey and finding God by looking inward rather than outward. I mean, what, what do you think about all that, James? Well, it's, it's an overstatement. I wouldn't say he absolutely invented it, but the <laughs> Confessions is the most luminous and compelling early example of people doing that, and he takes it further than others had. Yeah, it's a book in which he says, look, I'm a bishop now. I'm supposed to be this holy guy up in front of the church here, saving everybody else's souls, and I'm not so sure about myself. One of the most accessible lines in the Confessions is where he says that the one thing I really don't know is what temptation I'm going to submit to next. Yeah. And that's a kind of becoming humility on the part of somebody in front of church where we're more accustomed to see people. Um, who maybe look like they're pretty confident about themselves and preaching at us. I, I think that's that's really good, and I, I think that's why the Confessions, it's a really, really fine read. And we've got more callers on the line. Alyssa in San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Alyssa. Hi. Um, actually, it's Alyssa, but I, um, I am of Algerian Berber descent myself, so I'm just kind of interested in more about his North African background, how that did or did not influence his views. Well, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, Roman North Africa was kind of the Nebraska of the <laughs> Roman Empire. It was the Kansas. It was the Grain Belt. It was prosperous. It was where, uh, where much of the wealth of the Roman Empire came from, even though it also had some of that provincial Nebraskan kind of... Hey, watch your step there, man. It. I'm from Nebraska. <laughs> yeah, you know. well, you're the uh, St. <laughs> well, Augustine of go. modern yeah. philosophy, John. <laughs> you're not in Nebraska anymore, as near as I can tell. <laughs> Um, so he's, he's both of the Roman tradition, but also rooted. His mother was undoubtedly of the Berber, uh, of Berber ancestry. Um, and there's a mixture that continues today. I was privileged to attend a conference in Algeria about six years ago. The president of the country sponsored. Very kind of risky thing to do to have a conference on a Christian saint in a country with an Islamic insurgency going on. But they're, they're, they're working at recovering a sense of what that ancient Africa was and how the various streams come together. Um, in, in a figure like him. 
Well, that, that, that's interesting. Uh, I'll remind our listeners, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing St. Augustine with James O'Donnell from Georgetown University. You've heard the outlines of Augustine's answer to the problem of evil. Are you convinced? Do you think an Orthodox Christian has an answer to this problem? Join our discussion, 1-800-525-9-9-7. You're listening to an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. Good, evil, original sin, just war, when Philosophy Talk continues. So, are the shenanigans of Adam and Eve the basis for evil in the world ever since? How do you see the world? As a battleground of good and evil like the Manichaeans? Or just as the neutral effect of a big bang that didn't give a damn either way? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. We're discussing uh, the theories of St. Augustine with our guest, James O'Donnell from Georgetown University. James, let's go back to November 1969. You're, you're there, uh, I don't know where, some college somewhere, uh, reading, reading in the library uh, the works of St. Augustine, and its contemporary relevance really hits you. Uh, I know he had some interesting ideas about uh, when warfare could be justified. What, what, what were his ideas of contemporary relevance? Well, can I confess a small frustration? Sure. It seems to me that every time an American president wants to send forces into harm's way, Time magazine has to have an article about whether wars are just or not. And when they do that, they have to put a picture of Augustine in the margin, a little Renaissance engraving or a little Botticelli, something like that. So he's the patron saint of just war. Um, he's actually a much more sophisticated figure than that. What I was reading in 1969 came back to me vividly, in fact, after 9-11, because 9-11 for us was a lot like 410 for the Romans. Uh, 410 was a time when the Visigoths came and sacked the city of Rome for three days. First time Rome as a physical place had been attacked in 800 years. Wow. People were shocked all over the world. Augustine's reaction was not the standard, the barbarians are coming, the barbarians are coming. Instead, he stood back and said, so maybe there's a larger story going on here. Maybe there's a more complicated story of the development of humankind. Sure, he talks about just war, but he does so always in a restrictive kind of way. Okay, let's take that. Let's take that uh, restriction. And and when you tell us about his views about just war, we'll we'll try to keep that in mind. That is not a, a kind of carte blanche, Time Magazine kind of thing. But tell us, do tell us a bit about about his views about war and when it's justified and the place of this all in the long arc of human history. Various places in his writings, you can pull together basic arguments about uh, war to be fought in defense of property, war that's not offensive, war that has a just cause, war that God has in some way or another indicated he approves of. But in fact, it was on that day in 1969 that I read his words, and I quote them often to this day, that Augustine says, the just man regrets the necessity of fighting even a just war. And it's relatively uncommon to find defenders of the justice of one war or another who manage to make that regret as much a part of what they say as that justification. Right. They take it um, with glee that they find the justification. You know, right. they do. Yeah. But he's got a Bible problem again. Remember what I said a few minutes ago? He's got Joshua fighting the Battle of Jericho. He's got a war in the Bible, and God has definitely approved of it. 
no question about it. So when he evolves a theory of just war, it's not because he wants to think one up or because he thinks wars are just. He's trying to explain how wars can be just because he's got plain, flat-out biblical proof that they are. Um, the theory he builds that way isn't necessarily one he means to be taken out um, and taught in war colleges on all sides of the ocean um, as a way of planning forward to next strategies. We've got a caller in line who wants to ask us about uh, war and killing. Uh, Millie in Berkeley, welcome to Philosophy Talk, yes. Millie. Hello, thank you. I think a lot of what I hoped to hear has been said in, in, in large measure. I always find it entertaining, uh, rather horrifying, that sex seems to be the center of morality for so many people. And in a way, that's what we can glean from the rough details of Augustine's autobiography. Uh, How does he see war, killing, violence as a personal problem for individuals at all comparable to the personal problems of sex? Or does he? Uh, Thanks, Billy. Good question, uh, James. What do you think? Well, that's funny and sensitive in a way. Earlier Christian writers in the Roman Empire had been adamantly pacifist. Uh, They were the ones who said that no one who was a Christian could become a soldier, and no soldier could become a Christian without ceasing to be a soldier. But that's from the days when Christianity was a persecuted and unofficial religion in the Roman Empire. Um, Augustine is more tolerant. Augustine is more open-minded, you could say. But Augustine is also a member of a state-sponsored church, depending on the support of the state. Right. So there's a point late in his life when, in fact, there's a general in charge of the Roman province who's who's thinking about leaving the army and becoming a monk. And Augustine makes a long journey to go to see this guy to say, we need you defending the borders. It's okay. You don't have to become a monk. And that wouldn't have happened 100 years earlier. Is Augustine at all ambivalent about the marriage of political power with religious power? I mean, is there any ambivalence? I mean, so we got this big, huge, powerful state apparatus, Rome, joined to Christendom. I mean, does he see any problem about abuse and all that, you know? The scholars get in arguments about that one to this day. Um, He did use state power for his own benefit. Um, There came a point at which the state itself turned on one of his allies. There was a government official who'd been a big supporter of his um, who got on the wrong side of a a coup um, and was put to death. And he was a good personal friend of Augustine. And there is an argument made that Augustine, for some years after that, was kind of disillusioned and pulled back from, from the reliance he'd had on the state before. But no matter how hard you try to defend him, you have to admit that when push came to shove, he was willing to accept state sponsorship for his religion because he was so sure it was right and because he hadn't really fully understood the impact of accepting that, that state authority and sponsorship. Now, now within the church, uh, uh, Augustine was a great heresy fighter. He fought the Manichaean heresy, the Arian heresy, the Pelagian heresy, the Dynastian heresy, if I remember correctly. And in some of those cases, I mean, like the Arian heresy, weren't, weren't Weren't people put to death for being heretics? Am I right about that? And if so, how did Augustine feel about that? There was death penalty for heresy under the Christian Roman Empire. I think it can be argued pretty fairly that Augustine was never directly responsible for sending anybody off to be condemned, um, but used at least the terror of the possibility to get his way more than uh, more than many moderns are comfortable with with watching him do. So, so the city of God, 
uh, it's been a while since I read The City of God, <laughs> partially as an undergraduate in the Great Books Program at Notre Dame. So my memory of it is vague, you know. But The City of God, there was in The City of God, there was The City of God and The City of Man, and how The City of God un- would come into realization through the elect, and not just... And, and, and even people who looked like they were part of the city of God, you couldn't really tell who belonged. Now, doesn't mixing up, you know, I mean, Ro- Roman authority with religious authority, doesn't that like just muck that whole thing up? I mean, was Rome really supposed to be an instrument for bringing about the city of God with its imperial conquest and all that stuff? Well, on his worst days, Augustine will say that the <laughs> Roman Empire was made great under the emperor Caesar Augustus so as to provide the largest possible political context for the message of Jesus to spread. He'll say that, no no question about it. He doesn't really see the Roman Empire creating a, a global church as expanding the people of God. And that's really one of his more symp- sympathizable um, kind of positions. There are plenty of people around in his world who thought they could tell you who was going to hell and who was going to heaven for sure, and it tended to be their friends who were going to heaven. Augustine, again, that line, he's not sure what temptation he's going to give in to next, uh, looks out in his congregation and thinks, a bunch of these folks are probably going to heaven, a bunch of these folks are probably going to hell. I don't know which ones. I'm here to help them all. Right. And that's at least uh, a little bit, you know, a sympathetic position. So see, I, the, the one sort of thing that bugs me a little bit is going back to the heresy. I mean, Augustine started out as a heretic, I guess, by later mm-hmm. lives, and he reasons he reasoned his way away from that, you know, f- through free thought and reflection. Uh, why would heretics be put to death, and why would he condemn the putting to death of heretics when, if he had applied that to himself, you know, I mean, why would he at all countenance it? Why wouldn't he say that's not the way to deal with heresy? The way to deal with heresy is to let free thinking people be argued to the truth, the way I was. Well, he hadn't read Mill. Well, as a matter of fact, he he hadn't gotten to Mill yet, and he lived in a world in which um, the position he took, again, was the moderate one, the reasonable one, the never actually putting anybody to death but just scaring the daylights out of him kind of position. Uh, And what? It was a world full of capital punishment and violence, and you can almost try to justify him when you point to that. Uh, Is he on a trajectory in Christian thought? towards a more tolerant and more inclusive kind of position? I think he is. Is he there yet? No, he's not quite there yet. We've got time for one last question about ancient Rome. Bob in Berkeley. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, uh, Bob. Hi. Um, you speak to um, St. Ambrose and Augustine regarding uh, the statement, um, when in Rome, live as the Romans, and diplomacy, that kind of thing. Okay, th- thanks. James, this will be your last, uh, and then sure, you can pirouette well, anything you want for your last comment. There's a, there's a complicated answer to that one, uh, but uh, Ambrose was the teacher who baptized Augustine um, and was someone who persuaded him to recognize that local custom, local variation, uh, local diversity means something and to distinguish what's custom from what's essential. And again, on his good days, Augustine is somebody who tried to get past a lot of the controversies and quarrels of his time to focus on what was essential. He was so sure... He had a good and a true and a right and a redemptive message that he went barreling forward. 
Um, and he did lots of interesting, persuasive, and I think good things. Um, but he also did so without realizing what would happen when people came along a century even later and had to deal with the legacy of St. Augustine. The last thing Augustine ever thought anybody would be talking about is the legacy of St. Augustine. Well, James, on that note, thank you for joining us. It's been a really fascinating conversation, and we'll, we'll have to have you back on Philosophy Talk sometime in the future. Great. Well, thank you. Our guest has been James O'Donnell, provost at Georgetown University, author of Augustine, Sinner and Saint, a new biography. So, uh, John, what did you learn today? I thought that was really fascinating. Oh, I, I learned a lot today. And as a matter of fact, I was just reminded of something that uh, by, by email we didn't get a chance to read, namely Marcus Aurelius's Meditations was a piece of interiority uh, well before Augustine. So, yeah, yeah. So much for your uh, Notre Dame education. <laughs> well, like I said, I, did, I read that somewhere, and I thought, can that really be true, that Augustine yeah, yeah. invented interiority? He certainly elevated interiority yeah. and searching for God by searching inward. We didn't talk about this the doctrine of illumination that he has. And his view about how you actually find God is you can't, by looking at the sensible world, you look at the self, you do this Cartesian cogito-like thing, and somehow you God illuminates your inner voice and shows himself to you through this inward journey. Well, we, you know, we talked about a lot of important stuff, and there's, of course, an, a, a whole lot of stuff in Augustine we didn't talk about, the Arian heresy and the Trinity and so forth. But let me end on a relatively trivial note. Uh, poor poor St. Augustine becoming the patron saint of just wars. Uh, St. Nicholas, you know, St. Nicholas was really a wonderful bishop in uh, in ancient, or not so ancient, uh, Turkey, uh, who did wonderful things. And, and now he's the patron saint of Coca-Cola. So, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Which is worse? Uh, if, is you're, <laughs> if you're going to be a saint, you have to be careful what the Coca-Cola company or Time magazine is going to do with you. And, Ken, I really want you to keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the message is, you know, if you're going to become a saint... You, you never know who's going to appropriate your sainthood for their causes after you're after you're dead and gone. So be careful, right? Be careful. Be careful. Yes. But you know, uh, this conversation continues. It already has begun on our blog, the blog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is cogito ergo blogo, because John, you've already started blogging, right? I have blogged on St. Augustine and explained why uh, I think all the heresies he disapproved of were more plausible than his own position. Every single one of them you think well, is more Maybe not the Dynastian Harris. That was an interesting one, you know. It was a, there was a big worry about whether the people who were priests really were priests because they might have been made priests by somebody who was made a priest by somebody who had capitulated under Roman torture in the old days. But and, anyway, go read uh, John's blog. <laughs> but anyway, I am digress. For the final word, we're going to turn to that most confessional of commentators, Ian Scholes, the 62nd theologian. Ian Schulz, before his final conversion to Catholicism, St. Augustine was, if not a follower of Manichaeism, then at least what we might call a fellow traveler. The founder of Manichaeism was called Mani, which appears to have been more of a term of respect than a name meaning light king or the illustrious. Mani did the usual stuff saviors do. He preached, he healed the sick, got disciples, got killed. Manichaeism took as its central tenet that this world and all it contains are evil. All is either light or darkness, and the bodies of human beings are prisons, keeping the light from shining. Such dualism was common at the time. Augustine himself wrote of one fanatic, not a Manichaean, who would only wash his face with his own saliva because water was of the world and therefore evil. I don't know where the guy thought his spit came from, but never mind. Manichaeism was a rival to Christianity in Christianity's early days. It set itself against Christianity because Christianity was full of mysteries, and Manichaeism did not believe in mysteries. It confidently explained the origin, composition, and future of the universe. So what was it? Well, it seems that the sun and the moon were created as receptacles of the light to be freed from the darkness, the moon collecting light during the first half month and pouring that light into the sun during the second half of the month. When the sun and moon have liberated enough light, a fire will burst out on earth which will burn for over a thousand years, driving the king of darkness and his minions into a pit. So there you go. Universe. Explained. All's well that ends well. 
It is not known for certain what first attracted Augustine to Manichaeism, but it was astronomy that turned him against it. He had read philosophers who could actually predict eclipses with accuracy, unlike the Manichaeans. Also, Manichaeans were believers in astrology. Having observed that two men born at the same place and the same time under the same stars do not necessarily turn into the same person, Augustine rejected astrology. Further, Augustine came to believe that evil was a product not of nature, but of individual choice. Again, astrology is contrary to Christianity because it denies that freedom of choice. If the stars control behavior, then human beings are not responsible for their own sins. In his confessions, Augustine wrote of his gradual conversion, quote, I still thought that it is not we who sin, but some other nature that sins within us. I preferred to excuse myself and blame this unknown thing which was in me, but was not part of me. The truth, of course, was that my sin was all the more incurable because I did not think of myself as a sinner, unquote. So if evil is not the world's fault, whose fault is it? Ours, Augustine concluded. When free will meets desire, trouble follows. We succumb to desire, our parents did, their parents did, their parents before them, all the way back to the first humans, Adam and Eve, who threw away eternal paradise for the pursuit of earthly pleasure. Theirs was the original sin, and has cursed us ever since. Henceforth, Augustine refuted Manichaeism, anathematized its adherents, and pretty much single-handedly demolished it as a competitor to Catholicism. Thank you, St. Augustine, and your brilliant conception of original sin. Yes, it wasn't Satan that gave birth to evil. It was all that darn Eve. I gotta go. Ian shows the only man who can solve a philosophical problem in 60 seconds. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2008. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Daniel Elstein is our director of research. Lael Weiss is our webmaster. Also thanks to Zoe Corneli, Merle Kessler, Corey Goldman, and Mark Stone. Philosophy Talk is sponsored in part by Powell City of Books on the web at powells.com. Support also comes from the Templeton Foundation. And from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.